You make 300 episodes of a game show podcast and they don't fucking contact you. What do you gotta do in this industry? Oh, sorry, I'm not Sherry Shepard. I'm not a comedian. Whose agent do you need? Whose publicist do you get? This is some bullshit. How dare they? I am just... Ah! Welcome to a podcast with Jordan Haas. I'm your host, Jordan Haas. It's a wonderful, rambly episode. The kind that everybody loves. Right? 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 Yeah. All right. So, uh, this is going to be a very rambly episode, so forgive me. Uh, So, we're going to be talking game shows. We're going to be talking all sorts of stuff. The theme of today's episode is going to be mostly talking heads. Uh, so, today is Wednesday, and I watched a great episode of Jeopardy Masters. I think that tournament's very fun. Just, it's almost like a tournament of champions, tournament of champions. And it's been a fun to see a primetime game show like that. Uh, I don't know if it's on too many times a week, but I appreciate it. This week also had Celebrity Wheel of Fortune. With Maya Bialik, Ken Jennings, and Vanna White all playing the show. With Pat Sajak's daughter Maggie being the puzzle board person. And I thought that was a very cute episode. This week's also a fan favorites of Wheel of Fortune. Again, another great tribute for game shows and all this wonderful stuff. I think whoever's on Wheel of Fortune right now is doing a great job of adapting the brand for a modern era and still showing off the stuff that we like, and I, I, I love that a lot. <clears throat> uh, so, hey, if you really like Wheel of Fortune, this should be your week. Uh, all that's missing is what, the return of a double play wedge <laughs> or the jackpot or something? But no, uh, it has been fun. And... I, I just want to say that it's been it's been interesting this, this week watching a lot of essentially documentaries, uh, to say the least. Uh, I should point this out right now. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I was in television production and I worked in documentaries. So I watch a lot of documentaries. It's the niche that I, aside from game shows, know a lot about. And I'm going to talk about the game show show. Now, first off, am I pissed that I wasn't get called to be on that thing? Yes. However, and I will say however, they got Christian Carey on, they got Adam Needif on. And Adam has wrote a lot of books about game shows. He should have had more screen time on there. Christian Carrion has a podcast called Stranger Than Christian where he interviews people. And then at the, I believe, the Strong Museum, 
for for the play, he interviews game show contestants as well. So these are two very qualified people in the world of the game show fandom talking about game shows. And while I would love to have been included in that, but then again, there's so many people who can have asked Alex, Alex Davis, maybe, Corey Anatano, maybe. Uh, uh, you could have asked um, Tim. You probably could have asked Tim. You could have asked a lot of people who were on game shows, I suppose. Um, they did get a, uh, Louis Vertel, who does know a little bit about game shows. He was a Jeopardy contestant once. The big surprise that they had was Derek Beckles. Because as a longtime fan of TV Carnage, I was like, he's one of my favorite comedy writers. Why is he on this? And it was great to have him talk about the history of African-American representation on game shows in terms of hosting. So there was a lot of great talking heads. But at the same time, and here is just my review, it felt a lot like a talking head I love the 80s game show thing rather than really answering the important questions about game shows. A lot of the facts that were presented on the game show show, I have brought up on the podcast. So they're nothing really new if you're a longtime game show fan. You know about Alan Ludden with Betty White. You know about Who Wants to Be a Millionaire being a British import. You know about Richard Dawson getting Family Feud because of the success of Match Game. So it's one of those things where it's like, you learn nothing new, but it's a good casual documentary about American game shows. Now, here's where I'm going to keep going through with this. The game show show, if you look deeper into the credits, look deeper into credits, it's actually, even though it's ABC News editorial has done it, it's actually a spinoff of Canada's quest for game shows. That was a Canadian documentary from a couple of years back talking about game shows in Canada. And it had the same sort of appeal. This is the part where we talk about this game show, and this is the part where we talk about this game show. So in the case of today's episode, the answer is, it started out talking about quizzes, and then it just sort of morphed into like a little bit of Goods and Todman, a little bit of Family Feud, and it, it was sort of mishmash. I, I, don't, I know that we're trying to go for a cohesive story about game shows, and then the big in credits is the risk factor, go big or go home, but they barely did a great storytelling device for that. So the loose, I have to be honest, they had good interview people, but a lot of them were just talking heads going, oh yeah, I love that show. Uh, and I liked Sherry Shepard in there, but I liked it when she was talking about her appearance on Family Feud. It, it sort of, anything else felt like just the VH when I love the 80s kind of show. Um, so some of the talking heads were helpful in assisting in what I assume was the story that they wanted to tell with the episode. Adam and Christian, for instance. Derek Beckles, for instance. Ken Jennings, of all people, helped in the story. Chris Connolly of ABC News also helped. So the main story of episode one is the answer is, and it was about, it's supposed to be, I'm supposed, I'm guessing it's supposed to be about quiz shows. 
So they start out with the 1950s and they try to gradually go into the decade by decade. But every so often, mishmash their way into a different decade. So it's like 1950s, we talk about the quiz shows and we talk about the $64 question becoming $64,000 question. And then we talk about them being rigged, the dark period. And then suddenly we talk about uh, the debut of Jeopardy. And I love the fact they talk about the origin of Jeopardy coming from the quiz show scandals. That's always one of my favorite stories of all time in terms of game shows. Then it suddenly gets into, oh, but then uh, Goodson Todman had Password and Goodson Todman had Match Game and Match Game was about to flop, but then we switched the question and they got dick. They got the fanciest writer for Mad Magazine, the Gadget King himself, to be a talking head talking about Match Game and doing a great anecdote. And then it suddenly goes into Family Feud and then it cuts to Dawson, and then it cuts to Match Game, and then, oh, it's representation, but also let's talk about Paul Lynn and Hollywood Squares. It sort of just backtracked a few times. Like, we're talking about panel shows all of a sudden, so we're going to be talking about what's my line? I've got a secret. And then we'll cut to Match Game being failed, and then we'll talk about Charles Nelson Riley, and then we'll cut over to Hollywood Squares with Paul Lynn, and then suddenly talk about the reboot from the 90s with Gilbert Gottfried in the You Fool incident, it, it, it never really cohesively answered the question of why people love game shows. And I think the main story, the main topic was supposed to be about the quest for knowledge on game shows. What does a game show mean in terms of trivia? And I like that they tried to, and I, I mean, it was an attempt to book in the $64,000 question in 21 with who wants to be a millionaire. But when it got to millionaire, it was really like 10 seconds. It like, it was such a blink and you miss it. And I thought that was the most disappointing thing because I think what you could have done better for the game show show was had three separate stories going on in three separate eras. They didn't have to go since the 50s in the 80s. That's what they do with Candace Quest for game shows. They should have just started out with like the Jeopardy story. Go from the game show origins, the quiz show scandals and go to Jeopardy. And then second, go with the risk reward factor. You go with the $64,000 question. You go with 21 in the game show scandals. Then you go into the return of the big money game show in the 90s, which was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but then you can adapt it into maybe Deal or No Deal or One Versus 100, the big money game shows of the 2000s. Then you go into story three, which was the Goodson Todman era of, well, because there was no quizzes, Goodson Todman created a lot of shows that weren't really, uh, trivia base or ways to rig it was more panelly comedy and you go through a little minor history of the goods in Todman library uh, they could have done those little three little stories they went decade by decade but it's sort of jagged because you we're so we're showing off like 
match game from the early 60s and then cutting to the 70s. Then we're cutting to match game with Charles Nelson Reilly, but then we got to cut back to the 60s for Hollywood Squares and then jump forward to the 90s and then cut back to the 80s with Dick Clark Pyramid and then cut to Stray Hand 2010s. It, it, that was to me, it's just too much of a push and shove. And the best thing for me on the game show show was when they were trying to tell the Jeopardy story. Amy Schneider being a contestant, Alex Trebek, and then getting stage four uh, cancer and the impact he had on the show. It, to me, that was a lot of impact for a game show. And I wish they covered Portal into that track. Like, what did Jeopardy mean for people? What does this show mean for people? And I know this is just the first episode of four, so that means Wheel of Fortune will be coming up, Deal or No Deal will be coming up, and probably some of the shows we've already been talking about will probably be showing up in a later episode. But most likely, we're going to be seeing things like Let's Make a Deal and The Price is Right and see how that goes. Um, to me, I thought the show was fun. I thought it's a good... Hey, I don't think anyone's going to ever listen to my fucking podcast, but they might watch this show to get a better understanding of game shows. And if you have about 40 minutes, it's on Hulu. Give it a watch. It's enjoyable. And there's a lot of great people on there. However, on a documentary standpoint, they never answered the question of the show. The talking heads, some were good cast, others were bad cast. When you get Ben Bailey from Cash Cab and he only says one sentence, it's just sort of, oh. And I think if they put a little too much into Chris Connolly to tell the story and they had like Howie for a couple moments, Drew Carey for a few moments. They have all of these big booked guests, but they don't really cover the inside. Like Dick for Match Game was a great pick because he told the story, fantastic. Going into Jeopardy, you get, you get Ken Jennings talking about a good chunk of the story, which is great because he's obviously a big fan of Jeopardy. But then you only get Christian for like three sentences. And it's always as like a, like a glue to cut away from two talking heads. So it's like, so you know they had a lot of fun on the show and that's why people like it. So then they had to make a new spinoff series. And so that spinoff series was called this. And it was, that was what it was. And just to me, that was the disappointing part. I think it's a good show, could have been better, but feels a whole lot like Canada's quest for game shows. And I think at four episodes, they are gonna try and cram a lot of game shows in little time. And I don't think they want to pick and choose which stories to tell, obviously. And they booked so many guests that they want to make sure everybody gets at least a little appearance. But I don't think that many people who were on this episode needed to be on the show. As much as I like Guy Branham, what's up X-Play? What's up talk show the game show? He didn't really offer that much other than, hey, gay representation in game shows. Good. But you had Louis Vertel there who probably said the same thing. So it, it becomes this sort of like, and then you had Margaret Cho saying the same thing. Like you, you have all of the, the, there's probably a lot of repeat 
in the interviews. And I think what would have been better is if he had more historian people who are like in the weird world of game shows, people who worked on these game shows, the hosts of these game shows, and that's it. I don't think you really need comedians. When they talked to Millionaire, obviously they couldn't get Regis. They got Meredith Vieira. They got a contestant from the 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 I believe it was the not the Chris Harrison era of Millionaire. But they barely glanced on what was the impact of Millionaire, the big money game show. They talked about $100,000 pyramid with Strahan. But there's a whole story about $100,000 Pyramid in the world of game shows, because at the time, game shows were still very frowned upon in favor of let's get celebrities to do things because celebrities doing things means viral ability and, and it's a chance. The ABC took a chance on $100,000 Pyramid because it was more of the celebrity focus versus the contestant focus. And what happened was that was the start of summer funding games because of Pyramid that led to a, a reboot of BattleBots that now is on Discovery Channel. Uh, you got to see later uh, a reboot of Match Game because of this. You got to see a reboot of Card Sharks and all sorts of new game shows down the pipeline. Celebrity Family Feud and $100,000 Pyramid were the two because celebrities were playing the game shows, not civilians. And I think that we're the only like major, and I mean major game show in studio with like contestants that aren't celebrities currently on the air in prime time would be a Price is Right nighttime special, Let's Make a Deal nighttime special, or Press Your Luck. Everything else has to pretty much involve a celebrity of some kind. Otherwise, it is Don't Forget the Lyrics, which I guess is good, Beat Shazam, which is kind of good. But mostly, it is just celebrities doing stuff. And I think that's a story that you can tell for another episode. Celebrity interference with game shows. Interference is a very rude word. So when you get people like Bob Bowden to sit there for an interview, you should get more than just one sentence out of the guy. He's really brilliant. So for me, I think this was one part really good broad strokes of what I what game shows are about and why they should be taken seriously. They had some really great people on, but they got buried by a lot of comedians saying one sentences that made nothing and a lot of fluff over. Oh, man, I love Family Feud. Oh boy, do I love The Price is Right. Well, they never did The Price is Right yet. Oh joy, do I love Jeopardy because I feel stupid. Like, we, I, that, it's all unnecessary. I think they, they could have done a much better job on the game show show. But given who it's for, not me, it's an okay thing. It's better than... Here is the broadest review I can give for the game show show. It's at least better than another half dozen true crime specials for ABC News. I'm so glad they tried something different for ABC News. This is just the quest for Canada's game shows, but for America, 
and with a lot more talking heads that were unnecessary. The people who should have had the airtime, the ones that I would consider friends and knowledgeable experts, barely got the screen time. And those that got the screen time barely had anything insightful other than, oh, did I look at how they wore clothes back then. No, it doesn't. It does not matter. What mattered was like the importance of the one thing I did like another thing, a positive. They had Jay Leno on and, you know, Jay Leno, I think he's a great guy. He's hosting You Bet Your Life. I think he loves classic game shows. I think he's a classic entertainer. And he he got to be having a good minute long piece talking about how I've got a secret had the last living person to see the Lincoln assassination. And the repeat of this is somebody this is an event that's in textbooks. And you think Lincoln, you think hundreds of years ago. And here he is on television, and that is very important because it shows how recent history can be and how things can be archived and preserved in game shows. Like, that was Jay Leno's basic talking point, but, you know, it's Jay Leno. And I thought that was one of the best moments on the game show show. There's these little moments on the game show show that I'm like, hell yes, they're going to talk about Betty White and Alan Ludden. That's a great story to tell. And then it's like 20 seconds and then they just move on. And it's just, ah, disappointing. Very disappointing. They could have expanded on that. Those are the kind of things I like about game shows, but you need to have four more comedians go, oh, but Password was so silly because they had silly answers. It, it, it just to me was just to me, you could have, I, I almost am certain if you gave me all of the cut of every interview that the producers gave, I could have told a much better cohesive story about all these game shows. And I think the way that they did it was a little bit wrong, but there's nothing to do about it. At the end of the day, it is worth a watch if you want to see a generalization of game shows and have some really amazing, talented people on there. But at the same time, it's not, oh my God, I love this because a lot of the people I would have loved to see on there barely got the screen time. And to me, that was the most disappointing part. And that was the most frustrating thing watching it. It wasn't so much the game shows and the stories and all this, because I've heard these stories a hundred times. But the way it was presented was very VH1. And I think they could have done a lot better. So to me, it's a it's like a 2.5 out of 5. It's not a game show. It's not a must watch. But if you like game shows, give it a check out. But they could have done a whole lot better. The editing was was all over the place. The story was all over the place. And the way they present the game shows could have been tweaked a little better. Um, and they didn't even ask me what the fuck. No, uh, even if, without me, here's the thing. And I'm I'm joking about the whole they should have cast me because if they had me on, I would have probably said the same shit as two of the comedians that they already had repeat the line. Two of the experts that they brought on who've already said the news and the information that there's really no need for me there. But the experts barely got the time of day 
and the comedians were basically pointing out the obvious. Well, they were drunk on match game. Whoa. Oh man, it's just, you should have seen they gave away lots of money on a game show. And we barely touched the surface of Dr. Joyce Brothers on the $64,000 question. Even though that was a great story that they told. That, that was the disappointing part. A talking head is, okay. In a documentary, a talking head is, I've done that before. And a talking head is typically retrospectives, which was what the game show show was, or it's a documentary where they don't really have anything interesting to show. And to me, that's always disappointing. And unfortunately, that's what CNN's The 80s does. That's what a lot of uh, retrospectives do. Uh, 30 for 30 does that a lot. And it's those aren't really good documentaries. I think a great documentary should have more behind the scenes, more information that you don't can't already Google. Um, one of my favorite documentary series currently on the internet right now is Noclip. Noclip does do the talking head, hey, I made this video game. But typically what they show is developers typing out code, developers sketching out art, play testing the game, going into meetings, the anxiety that comes with the last weeks before launch. The post-launch wear and tear, looking at the reviews and that that anxiety the developers have. And they show the behind the scenes of what makes a video game. With the game show show, which is a retrospective show, they don't really cover behind the scenes of game shows. But they also barely cover the news impact of game shows. And to me, I think that was the disappointing part. I, I want, if you're doing a documentary, to show more. To give me more information. And when it comes to game shows, I know a lot about it. Not everything. But the stuff that I did know, I wish they would show that a lot better. I'm glad they got episodes of the game shows. They got clearance to air some of these game shows. A lot of the Paley Center archives were featured there. But nothing on like news editorial of, hey, did you see John Carpenter win a million dollars on Millionaire? Or it, 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 to me, that's the disappointing part. It was too many talking heads. I'm sure there was a lot of, of just repeat late lines being said and a lot of unnecessary things that were already removed or unnecessary things that were added just to add padding to make it interesting and not boring just talking about a game show so that is my quick and easy review of the game show show check it out on hulu if you like game shows personally i'd rather you buy adam's book you check out christian's podcast you look at any of the experts' blogs because they will tell you way better stories than what was presented on the podcast or this TV show. You don't need my podcast for that. Go on out. These are experts. 
If you like Jeopardy, might I suggest checking out This Is Jeopardy, the new podcast with Buzzy Cohen. Check out Inside Jeopardy with Sarah Foss. Because those are both insides in the world of Jeopardy and ideas that they push in the history of that game show. To me, that's the thing that is more necessary. And I like a little bit more. That little peek behind the curtain. This wasn't really a peek behind the curtain. This was just, oh, it's you might as well say America's favorite game shows and then have these people talk about them. All right. <clears throat> could have been better, but it was fun, but could have been better. That is my honest review of Game Show Show. If you disagree with that, that's okay. I understand. But... It, it, it honestly was a little like, oh, okay. But I'm sure people will like it. It's better than True Crime Special. It's better than True Crime. I just, you know what? Less True Crime, more things like this. Do it for like Hot Wheels. Do it for uh, Barbie when that Barbie movie comes out. Do it for Disney movies. Do it for horror movies, whatever. Do this sort of thing for other genres of television and movies and media. I would prefer this than true crime. Uh, <clears throat> speaking of media and true crime, I also saw another documentary series, but this wasn't a TV show. This was a movie. This is Attack of the Dock. Attack of the Dock. Attack. Uh, so Attack of the Dock was directed by Chris Gore. Chris Gore from Film Threat. Uh, Chris Gore, uh, famous movie reviewer. Uh, famous other director for my big fat independent movie, which I think has a Rotten Tomato score of 19%. <clears throat> anyway, uh... Attack of the Dock is a documentary about G4. Correction, it's a documentary about Attack of the Show. Correction, it's a documentary about a few hosts on Attack of the Show while trying to be a broader statement about Attack of the Show while trying to elbow the new revival of Attack of the Show slightly with footage from the new Attack of the Show and old Attack of the Show and never really explaining a lot about Attack of the Show. So, Attack of the Dock is a documentary about uh, a Attack of the Show, G4's daily hour-long show about all the stuff that you care to know about. Uh, and it had Chris Gore doing interviews. It had Zach, who was one of the correspondents at G4. They had the directors. They have had a writer being interviewed. And it was mostly, what's it like to work on G4? What was it like to work on Attack of the Show? They didn't get Bruce Green. It, you didn't barely saw Casey Schneider on there. So G4's attack of this show uh, is essentially an hour-long daily show uh, 
that was about nerd culture. I'm gonna, before I give my broad appeal for it, I'm gonna say what the documentary was saying Attack of the Show was. Attack of the Show was counterculture to what was the mainstream media and it was about nerd culture at a time when nerd culture was on the rise, which was true. And it was not afraid to be provocative for guys and politically incorrect in its comedy. And you can't do that comedy anymore. You can't make Blazing Saddles again. So Attack of the Duck basically is one part. Hey, remember Attack of the Show? It was such a good show. We had Lloyd Kaufman on once for an interview. We had sketch comedy. We had we had viral videos and there was Olivia Munn and Kevin Pereira. I should note Kevin Pereira and Olivia Munn were both not featured in this documentary. They were never interviewed. Olivia Munn, probably because she's a big actress. And two, Kevin Pereira, uh, in any sort of interview that they grabbed from Kevin was from his pointless podcast. And it just sort of just glanced over Kevin's career and Olivia's career. They just sort of went like, oh, yeah, they were there. But also, let's not forget about the side guy reporter, Zach. I played guitar once. I was a somebody. Hey, we had Sarah Underwood. Remember Sarah? Yes. She was a main host. We remember Candace Bailey. Yeah, these were all major hosts. And they rose-colored glasses every part of that. Because when I was a kid growing up watching Attack of the Show, I loved Attack of the Show, by the way. But I hated the fact it was trying too hard to be this Spike TV knockoff. And every chance that they did, even when I was a high schooler, I went, this is stupid. And apparently that was the moments that were the best parts of Attack of the Show, according to this documentary and the talking heads that they had. Oh boy. You know, Sarah Underwood, who was a former Playboy Playmate, uh, she played a superhero named Bustus because she has big boobs. Bust, get it? You can't do that anymore, cause woke. Oh, okay. Neat. See, I remember when Sarah Underwood was there and a lot of uh, people were saying, this is a fake geek girl. And she's just doing this to revitalize her career because she's no longer a Playboy Playmate and she needs money. I remember seeing those comments. I think those were rude and disrespectful. I remember those kind of comments for Olivia Munn. I remember uh, those for... Oh, geez, there's so many people who are like... Olivia got it, Sarah Lane got it, Candace Bailey got it, Morgan Webb definitely got that during X-Play. And that gatekeeping of who is or isn't was always prevalent in online communities and on G4. 
And now it's worse because now there is this whole understudy of like YouTubers that have to create a culture war of everything. Because of the woke, because the feminists, because of the Joe Biden, God damn you. And it's, and it's so sad because now I can't really give a media critique without it being in that same fucking group of dipshit reactionary assholes. And they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Did you know Ben Shapiro was a failed screenwriter? Did you know a lot of these dipshit reactionary journalists are failed screenwriters or comedians or writers and that they're trying to get a grip because it gives them attention? I should have just been a conservative grifter at this point, but it turns out I have fucking morals. Anyway, Attack of the Dock uh, is trying to uh, tell a story about how Attack of the Show, you can't make that anymore because of the con of, because of the jokes, the fat jokes. Uh, let's just say jokes about uh, mental illness. And blind people, you see, you can't make those jokes anymore. Which at the time, yeah, you probably couldn't make those jokes back then either, but they did anyway because this was in that very edgelord era of the late 2000s, early 2010s, when everything tried to be Mind of Mencia and saying all the slurs you can. And you know, and, and you know why you're gay? And that's gay and all that kind of shit? Like, no, we've moved on pretty much. People have adapted their comedy. You don't have to do those jokes anymore. And that should be the fucking takeaway for Attack of the Show. The reason people liked Attack of the Show was because it was nerd culture at a time when there really wasn't any sense of nerd culture shown on television. There was no Star Wars specials on the media. There was no, oh, let's go check out the red carpet for an Avengers movie. There was never really any care for these cult television shows that we see on Twitter. People barely knew what the fuck Twitter was or Facebook and all of these tech things. Video games was still seen as a nerdy hobby for dweebs. Porn, which was a big part of Attack of the Show, and they did glance at it slightly on this documentary. Porn, which is a big part of internet culture and sex work online, which should be seen as a pro-sex work kind of look and a pro look at the internet, what you can do. They're thinking it's just look at the booba. Look at the nude ladies. No, it's about look how cool it was. If you wanted to, if you just wanted to oogle hot chicks, you just should have brought back Unscrewed with Martin fucking Sargent. The, the attack of the dock missed the mark completely on so many different reasons why people liked Attack of the Show in the first place. The one compliment I will actually give to this documentary is Chris Gore did do a great thorough talk about live Comic-Con 4G4 and that impact it had on nerd culture 
And for so many people, that was the first glance at Comic-Con before it became this mainstream thing. That was one of the biggest takeaways from the documentary. And I think that was some of the best parts of the doc is when there is this little story that they're about to tell. It was interesting. Hey, did you know Whitney Cummings once auditioned to be a host? And Olivia Munn got the... Whoa! That, that's interesting. They also completely missed Chris Hardwick being on there. I don't know if they're trying to avoid talking about Chris Hardwick because of Me Too or whatever. Uh, newsflash, Chris Hardwick is hosting the wall. He still does Talking Dead. He still has the nerdy branding. And a part of that was from Attack of This Show because he got a revival of his career. Because before that, he ended up doing fucking shipmates. The fucking blind date on a boat show. And then he got Attack of This Show. He ended up changing his branding. He became the nerdist. And it became a whole internet empire. He actually foreshadowed internet culture being nerdy on the internet which was a major uh, reason why Attack of the Show is gone now because the internet exists. Because now YouTube exists and everybody can do their own Attack of the Show, there's no need for Attack of the Show. But the nerds won at the end of the day. But you can't make Attack of the Show anymore because woke. It, it, it's mixed message. I also think it didn't do a good job of explaining Attack of the Show's origins and stories and everything going with it. It barely glanced at the reboot, probably because they didn't really want to talk about it. Um, and they barely explained... Ke they, Ke did you know Kevin Pereira was a PA? He was a PA at G4. Whoa! So, as far as if you're a fan of G4, the attack of the dock doesn't really bring anything new to the table as well if you've already been paying attention to G4. If you are one of those G4 fans that liked the old attack of the show and then got really upset because of the woke, you might like this a little bit better because they, they, they kind of skewed into that um, but they never really go into the nuance. They never really go into the why aspect or the business aspect or really why was the prominent things going on at the time that would cause this to happen. They bear, they don't talk about X-Play. I mean, they bring up X-Play, but they never, it's not an X-Play doc. They don't really talk about other G4 shows. Other than, like, at a glance, like, and then we had, like, Human Wrecking Balls and Ninja Warrior. But it's Attack of the Show. It's just Attack of the Show. And I don't think it did a great job of explaining Attack of the Show in the mind of what a G4 fan thinks Attack of the Show was. I think it did a good job if you worked on G4, what was the message that you were told Attack of the Show was, and if you were a host, why you think the show worked. But it, the why is not really shown that well. 
other than through clips of YouTube videos of varying quality. Some videos are 1080p, others 720, others are 360 blocky as shit iPod video. It To me, that was the biggest disappointment on here is, well, if we're gonna compare talking heads, the game show show had so many fucking talking heads and these shows were just going fast and fast and fast. Attack of the Dock is just one subject, Attack of the Show. But you barely had any talking heads about this. So they had to rely on the clips to tell the story. And those clips barely did the trick. Some of the facts that they had were just sort of like... The best way to describe it is the kind of things you would say to your friend at the bar that was like half-truths. I don't know if they were true or not, but it's that kind of thing where it's like, yeah, so after a show once, Olivia Munn patted me on the ass. That kind of story. Um, maybe it's interesting. Maybe. I think this would have been a great counter. This would have been great if there was no G4 reboot. If they didn't do a Thanksgiving special. And if they didn't denounce the kind of comedy the attack of the show did in their plan. I think both new G4 and old G4 did pivot and they both were right about nerd culture, internet culture, promoting all of these cool spaces. And I think attack of the docks best feature was essentially just explaining the impact the show had on internet circles and the impact it had on nerd culture because nerd culture is obviously one and nerds one uh and three pointing out the obvious fact there was no other place like attack of the show that covered these things i think that was the best takeaway for attack of the doc was explaining there was no other TV show like this, and they were right, but for the wrong reasons. Anyway, I say I don't think it's really the must watch if you're a big fan of G4. I think if you liked the Olivia Munn, Kevin Pereira years and you were in high school watching G4 at the time, and eh, maybe that's that's the perfect target audience to watch this but you don't get Kevin and Olivia. You don't get behind the scenes footage. You just sort of get the, we did sketches and stunts. Neat. Cool. Attack of the show got rebooted and they kind of overlapped the same kind of shit. They, they did stunts and did around the net. Although, if we're going to compare it, I will say Attack of the Show, the live, the three, they rebranded to three different shows with Vibe Check and The Loop and then The Three Ring Circus. And The Three Ring Circus was the closest to the original Attack of the Show. Vibe Check has basically become the Cream Team podcast. And The Loop kind of bounced because there was not really any guests that they were able to book. And that was kind of a disappointment. <clears throat> well, 
Although I will say there's a, a good chunk as to probably why. I don't know what that could be, but I'm gonna guess mismanagement. Uh, <clears throat> so, now it's time for me to review Attack of the Show in general, I guess. The reason Attack of the Show worked back then in the G4 era was because it was a daily hour long show that they had free time to. So it was basically G4's attempt at a TRL. So they had internet videos to pad for time so the crew can set up for interviews or for a DVDs day or a product review or a gadget review or one of these extra segments. Additionally, what made Attack of the Show work was field pieces. So a lot of the time it was like, let's go go-karting, let's go drift racing, let's go to this drift show, let's go to this car show, let's go to this comic con. Let's go to this cosplay event. Let's go here. Here's a skit. Here's a video. So there was a lot of VT that went into attack of the show. So during that hour long live show, you really had 44 minutes to fill. And in that 44 minutes to fill, a good 20 minutes of that was YouTube videos and skits. So the other 20 minutes you could fill was things like questions and answers from the crowd or... Uh, a live a piece that felt more like a Good Morning America or a Today Show or E! News, where it's just, hey, here is the star of this new TV show. Let's talk about your TV show. Hey, here's a comedian lift a podcast. Let's talk about your podcast. Hey, we saw this as seen on TV product. Let's play with this as seen on TV product. Hey, here's a musical guest playing a live band. They tried a lot of things. And then they had other video segments like science, like it's effing science or what's weird with or what's up with Japan. And it was like a weird Japanese thing. It was because the Japanese are so weird. And Attack of the Show worked because it was a variety show. And it worked because it was a variety show where if something didn't work in the first segment, the next segment, something better will show up. So much like Robot Chicken, you had six minutes. If it sucked, you just wait till the next act. And it was every day, Monday through Friday. So there were certain routines. There was certain skits, certain segments uh, that you were looking forward to. There was uh, calls to action from the community to make stuff through user created. Uh, there was amazing uh, contests to win prizes and do all this stuff. There was a lot of great ideas that Attack of the Show in the early years did. But you should also really point out that Attack of the Show was nothing without the screensavers. And the screensavers uh, was essentially uh, important because of its film talk at the time because they had uh industrial light and magic get interviewed a lot and new tech things to build out your ultimate tv rig or ultimate film rig and movie studios because of patrick norton and then patrick Norton breaking the shit out of a pc to show the inside parts and then you would get uh the g4 tech tv merger so screensavers would show up here and you get Alex Albrecht and Kevin Rose. And it was an okay tech help show, but they wanted to make it more nerdy. 
So they revived the format and it was more of a TV and movie show. That show would later end up getting rid of Alex Albrecht in favor of Kevin Pereira. And then that screensavers became Attack of the Show. And then Attack of the Show with Kevin Rose left and Sarah Lane left and Brian Moran left and then you got Olivia Munn. And it seems that they mostly talk about the Olivia Munn years, barely talk about when Kevin left for the Sarah Underwood years and, and Candace Bailey years, but they did talk about those, but it was mostly just Olivia and Kevin. And they didn't talk about things like, hey, this CEO left, and therefore we had to get rid of half the shows because of money. So they kept the tack of the show because it was it was cheap and easy to make. And we'll do X-Play, and then we'll try and put X-Play on every day so we can have two shows going on daily uh, to at least make room of this space and then they both got cancelled because uh, the Esquire network was going to happen and then the Esquire network bought the Style Channel so they're really G4 was just sitting in limbo with cops and cheaters reruns the new and improved I'm putting in air quotes attack of the show had Kevin Pereira there to pass the torch but what you really saw was mostly a Twitch show of Attack of the Show. And you had an hour of Around the Net versus like what was 10 minutes to set up a piece. Now the graceful part of Attack of the Show's reboot was indeed the cast. Kasim G, Gina Darling, Fiona Nova. Beautiful, wonderful, amazing. Will Neff was good as well. However, getting Will Neff to be the movie guy didn't end up working as well as they hoped. They wanted Will Neff to basically be the new Chris Gore. Didn't happen, so he became a sketch guy. Didn't really work out, so now we're going to make him do a stunt. Fiona Nova was there basically behind the scenes to do directing work. And then during the Beach House era, would end up in front of the camera. And then signed a contract to be an on-camera personality, unaware of where she would end up. And it ends up being Attack of the Show, a show she never saw. But she became the host of The Feed, the news segment on Attack of the Show, and she did a fantastic job on that. It was more of a cool, casual kind of thing. And yes, the first couple episodes, there were hiccups because ring a teleprompter, but she found her footing and it fit. Gina Darling was the next incarnation of Olivia Munn on Attack of the Show. Kasim G was the everyman character that you needed. A perfect passing of the torch from Kevin Pereira. But it sort of just fell out. Mostly because of pandemic and budgetary reasons. And just over killing this, this, the crew and the cast. Because they had to do a big stunt in a big game every week. And personally, I think Gina was the best part of the new Attack of the Show. Don't tell anybody. Gina was a great Attack of the Show host. She would have fit in the old era of G4. She would fit in this era of G4. And I wish her the best whatever she does here on out. Because she was a staple of it. Kasim G 
was an expert YouTuber, very funny, a perfect replacement Hardwick. And he got to do Fresh Ink. They rebooted Fresh Ink, Blair Butler's show, where they talked comic books. And he was fantastic on that, talking about his love of comics and wanting to talk about like the new Star Wars shows and all of these new things that were coming out on HBO. Uh, and while that was a short form, like podcasting, easy things, it costs money. And I think the problem was they did not know what to do with a big ass studio and not a lot of viewership and not a lot of budgetary reasons to do stuff. And it just fell on its face. And I said I would stop talking about G4. Because I think I've already said every single one of these pieces before. Attack of the Show is, is good, but the overkill definitely was showing. And that's not good. The reason Attack of the Show does so well was because they did it every day for an hour, not three hours. Additionally, it was a very cheap studio. They had the X-Play set right across the street. And they had the same writing staff. And they had the same crew there. Additionally, they knew that because you had to do a lot of pre-tapes, most of the time, Attack of the Show was already filmed far in advance. That really, you just had the host there to do the live clips of Around the Net. And then an interview of a celebrity. And you just kept going. And personally speaking, I still think Attack of the Show is a great idea. I think if they pivoted to content creators being interviewed, that would have been a much better show. If they got Twitch streamers, YouTubers, podcasters, and you kept that daily hour long, and you put it at a place where it was easy to on-demand, not a YouTube not a Twitch stream, but like a G4TV.com, a Hulu, what have you. You put the Attack of the Show show on E! or somewhere. It would have gotten a lot better traction. It didn't need a full-on network. Because Attack of the Show, as a format point, works. I still think that works to this day, 2023. However, the first era of Attack of the Show died because of mismanagement at the upper level and its inability to adapt with the times. It was the last show to air with X-Play. So it did something well. The rebooted attack of this show did well, but mismanagement also caused it to go away, just like X-Play. And X-Play was a good video game show. It had reviews, it had interviews, it had all that stuff. But it was an X-Play. And Attack of the Show wasn't Attack of the Show. Those, they weren't TV shows. Those were Twitch streams. And you have this big-ass studio for Twitch streams, more or less. You had all of these crew members that were, I think, maybe union? To do a Twitch stream in a big-ass studio. And then you overwork the the crew you overwork the producers you overwork the cast it does no you make it fun you get backups you build crew 
You get live. You get Avali made to do the anime segment, and then you have her on once a week. You you, you get Gerard to do the game break for for X play cross promotion and, and have that be a thing. No. Attack of the Duck was not really worth watching for two reasons. One, a lot of the shit I already knew. And two, it just reminded me we just had Attack of the Show and the frustration that happened when it ended. And knowing a lot of really talented people lost their jobs. And then watching the documentary, it was just, Hey, remember when I was on G4? Yeah, I do. But I, I, there's a whole lot of other people who were just on a new reboot of the show that just lost their job. and It just felt unsavory. That being said, though, uh, if you want two really good documentaries that have just come out, Defunctland has a documentary about a Wiggles dark ride in Australia that is really interesting because it's the Wiggles. So two, two, chugga, chugga, big red car. Uh, and also, uh, another bigger shout out would be Greg from Knickknacks, Pop Arena. Check out Pop Arena on YouTube. Uh, they just put out a hour and 40 minute video detailing the entire history of Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando, Florida. From the origins, the signings, to the shows that they filmed, to the aftermath, to Slime Time Live and everything in between. And it is one of the most cohesive stories I've ever seen about Nickelodeon Studios. And... I will say that Pop Arena did a great job of detailing, like, essentially, almost it was going into the core mechanic of Nickelodeon 90s and nostalgia. That at the end of the video, and I feel like I'm spoiling this, but it's okay. Pop Arena basically talked about why Nickelodeon Studios should never be made again and why we rely on nostalgia a lot for a simpler time. But it should never be replicated for a multitude of reasons. And it explains in detail everything from the non-union, the right to work jobs in Florida, to uh, the moving to California, to a lot of animation, which means not a lot of live actions, to less game shows. It was a great story. And it's proved to me, the Funkland and Pop Arena's knickknacks, that you don't really need multiple talking heads to try and illustrate your story that you're trying to give. For the game show show, they had like 500, like 100 talking heads. For Attack of the Dock, they had like seven or eight. And it was just sort of just going around in circles. And just sort of like, hey, remember Attack of the Show? That they barely were able to give the main story, which was the importance of having a safe space for nerd culture. But you shouldn't say safe space, because that's woke. 
You can't have safe spaces because those snowflake nerds are do 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 do. So, Attack of the Dock was just a pass. And you don't need to. But Defunct Land being just Kevin Perger uh, talking about this bizarre ass ride, the history of the Wiggles, and every change that happens with the Wiggles having to change the ride and change the look and deal making and health problems. It, it, it goes into depth. It goes into the research and it tells a great story about adaptability and just to me I think the main story on the Defunctly episode about the Dark Ride is the children's viewpoint of the Wiggles is the most important thing so when a Wiggle leaves what does that do for a kid and what does that mean for the branding of the Wiggles because a kid can't really cope with a change much like Blue's Clues so how are you going to change and that becomes the undertaking of the right. And that becomes the story. For Nickelodeon Studios, the pop arena, it talks about Carl Lemley and the original making of Western movies at Universal Studios, and that being an attraction, and then how the Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando, Florida was an attraction. You go see how the TV shows are made. And they had to bullshit their way through making fake productions and pilots and all sorts of stuff just to be a contract and the toll it took on the crew and the toll it takes on Nickelodeon in general and then just Nickelodeon changing strategies in early 90s, mid 90s and late 90s and just the changes that goes on with Nickelodeon because it's still a TV channel first and foremost so it goes into the story of essentially like a quick broad stroke of Nickelodeon's entire history with the studio and it's moving and shaking and things that go over to California instead of Florida. It's a great year by year pinpoint of Nickelodeon Studios. And the thing that I loved most about the Nickelodeon Studios retrospective, and this is the last spoiler I want to give, because I think you should definitely watch it. Greg, the documentarian, breaks down at the end of the documentary, talking about how his original idea was a year by year to date. But when it came to those closing years, there was nothing really to show because there wasn't really much happening and he got very disappointed because usually there'll be because he thought there would be a little implosion or a, a big event that you can say this is what ended and it never happened and there was no commercials to find of Nickelodeon Studios at a certain year and he kind of just gave up and said there were no commercials I found and he admitted that. And there was a vulnerability that came into that documentary of the documentarian talking about Nickelodeon Studios, but then turning it into the positive of what Nickelodeon meant for kids, theme park attractions, Nickelodeon still going strong in theme parks and this and that, this and that. 
but just where it ended up and the big takeaway. And I thought that was the most important part of the Nickelodeon Studios documentary. And I think when it comes to a talking head sort of doc, it really comes from the perspective of who's telling that story. With the game show show, you had hundreds of people, so you barely had the story. But when you got to see focus on certain subjects, such as Dick for Match Game, or um, Amy Schneider on Jeopardy, it brought you a little personal to that story that made it a lot of fun. For Attack of the Dock, even though I didn't really much care for it, you got to at least experience Chris Gore's thoughts about Attack of the Show in a way that was his own perspective. And then he tried to illustrate that with other people, but it just went a little off course. Because there really was no sentimental value in this thing. And I think that's what Attack of the Dock kind of sucked at. There was no sentimentability in there. There was no, this was a great part of my life and I did so much and I got to meet so many. There was those lines, but it it there was no tear-jerk moment. There was no, this was my life. It was more like a, yeah, I did this. Wasn't that fucking cool? And when it gets to these YouTube documentaries, Kevin, he's a historian. So he's telling his story and he's using his documentary status to basically explain a dark ride and its shortcomings, but still having a story. And Greg at Pop Arena, their story was just what can go wrong when corporations interfere with unions, essentially. And it becomes this very sad story with a happy ending, believe it or not. And I thought that's the kind of thing you need to have. It's all about the storytelling with these documentaries. And while I can't say what's the best documentary and this and that, this and that, I do think, though, that when it comes to telling stories on the internet, it all comes down to who's the one telling the story and what do they have to back it up and what's the way they're using their clips. Game Show Show, they use just any sort of game show clips that they got from the archives. Attack of the Dock, they got YouTube videos, I think. For Kevin, he had to get through a lot of newsreels, a lot of photos, commercials. Greg, same thing. Editorial, documentaries, news, quotes, other interviews, and merged them into this story that he wanted to tell. And I think that's what makes a really good story. I think a really good story is whoever is the storyteller and it's taking you on the journey. Does it have to be factually true? Not all the time. But when you can kind of sense like something's not right with a story or if something you're just about to latch on and they just cut ahead to the next thing, you just sort of give up. 
And I, I think that's the biggest problem with a lot of storytelling in the documentary field. I think when it comes to like, it reminds me of the WWE documentaries. They always do every year where it's like they get eight or so talking heads. Oh, everyone love when Mick Foley did this and I saw that and oh my God. No, that's not the story. If you really want the story of like the WWE people, sometimes it's things like evil where the you talk about the character and like them going heel and what does that mean other times you hear about the injury and what that meant for their career and the mental pain and anguish as well and other times you just get this saturated well because wcw what's fucked up wwe with no that's what it reminds me of. And it's just a little disappointing. <laughs> so, in conclusion, I think I've, I've ran over an hour. I didn't want to. But I wanted to talk about a bunch of documentaries I saw. I think that YouTube still has some great talent out there. I think a lot of times... It, it when it comes to a presentation like this it could have gone real south I think if you did the, the Wiggles Dark Ride with anyone else it would have felt like an angry video game dirt parody oh Australia had the Wiggles that's a baby ride fucking dookie dipshit and all you know, the ride sucks cause it breaks down what a bunch of cowabunga shit shit what's up guys smash the like button if you like to see more videos of dark rides What's up, you guys? You ever see Nickelodeon Studios? It's really cool. I used to see Legends, and I'm like, oh, wow, cool. Did you know there was a big story about Nickelodeon Studios? Anyway, it closed down now, and it sucked because Universal Studios is bullshit now with the Jimmy Fallon ride. Fucking shitty shit, fuck. Anyway, I guess Dan Schneider's a you creep. See you next episode. Smash the fuck button. No. You got actual people with dignity there. And that's what I love about it. They put their heart into the, these stories. And they probably spent a lot of time in the editing room, recording line after line and re-recording line after line to try and tell their story and try and figure out what was going on. And maybe the first draft was like 10 minutes and suddenly became 20 and became 30 and became an hour and a half but they committed to a story and i think that is something worth noting and i think a lot of times when it comes to the consumer culture that we live in it is just consume vomit and consume the vomit and that's been a, one of the major problems i've had with modern day internet you can't appreciate the game. You have to give your two cents. You have to talk about this. You gotta do that. No one's gonna fucking remember half the shit I talked about this episode. 
No one's probably gonna fucking listen to this episode now that I think about it. But it's the consume, vomit, consume, vomit era that we live in. I did not want to talk about documentaries and do a review of Game Show Show, Attack of the Dock, and talk briefly about Defunct Land and Pop Arena because I wanted to talk about those shows. I wanted to talk about documentaries. I wanted to talk about internet documentaries and what storytelling is all about. That was the main topic for this episode. It's just a little time capsule of what was the examples. A TV show that came out today, a documentary that came out last week, a YouTube video that came out yesterday, and a YouTube video that came out today. And of all of those, the YouTube ones I thought were the best. But you have to do some looking, you have to do some searching. And most video essayists don't even do a good job of telling that story. A lot of times you see a video essayist and it's just reading the Wikipedia page and then somewhat doing their own critique, like what this is. Now, if you could just imagine I have to put clips over everything, then we can call it a day. But it's a podcast, no one's really listening. Um, so, in conclusion, 30 for 30 is very fun sometimes when it comes to their stories. But it all comes down to who's the one telling those stories. And it also comes down to who is the most, um, I would say, I would not say good, but just caring about who's passionate about the story. Who, who has a lot to gain and a lot to lose in telling their story? So when it comes to a talking head, I think it should be quality over quantity. And I think it should really be from a place of passion and not the, um, not a cheap, oh, wow, cool. And not a uh, story that really missed the mark. So... That does it for today's episode. Uh, again, I don't know if I will do these weekly, monthly, whenever. I kind of want to. I kind of want to give up on podcasting altogether, to be honest, um, and just stick to writing. But I know that sometimes having these rambly thoughts, it goes out. People listen. It makes sense. But that's it. Uh, so if this is the last episode of my podcast again, thank you so much for listening all these times. Um, and if I do a new other episode, hey, that's good too. But I have a whole lot on my plate. And I just want to make sure everybody's okay. I want my mental health to be okay. My family's health to be okay. And I think that matters a lot more than internet content that no one watches or listens or reads. And let's face it, every piece of content now is disposable thanks to the exciting role of social media.
So I'm gonna go cry now. And I'm also gonna probably take a nap. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode. Uh, check me out at jordanhaas.com or on all social medias. Until next time, this is Jordan Haas, signing off.